Hi, this is Alan Ruff, the Thursday host of A Public Affair. If you have a moment and the, the resources, remember to support the station. And if you will, head over to wrtfm.org to donate and to see what else is going on at the station. The big sound from underground We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before We bring the sound communication of our tribal war Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night Attempt triangulation of our station in the fight Straight from the base deep down low precision And good afternoon, welcome to this, the Thursday edition of A Public Affair I'm your host for this hour, my name is Alan Ruff In an exception to our normal routine, today's program has been pre-recorded So we will not be taking callers uh, during the hour. In late December, President Biden signed a bill passed by Congress with bipartisan overwhelming support mid-month that cleared the way for an $858 billion Pentagon spending and nuclear weapons work at the Department of Energy for the coming year, 2023, this year, we're going to be talking about that today, that, that billions of dollars. With us today to discuss that funding package, its implications and ramifications, is a leading Pentagon spending and arms industry critic, William Hartung, author of the recent Tom Dispatch article entitled, What Price Defense? America's Costly, Dysfunctional Approach to Security is Making Us Ever Less Safe. Uh, Bill Hartung is a senior research fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He was previously the director of the Arms Security Program at the Center for International Policy and co-director of that center's Sustainable Defense Task Force. He is the author of the 2011 title, Prophets of War, Lockheed Martin and the Making of the Military-Industrial Complex, His articles on security issues have appeared in, among others, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, and The Nation. He also has been a featured expert on security issues on innumerable national and international TV, radio, and Internet outlets. Uh, Bill Hartung, welcome back to WORT. It's good to see you virtually, as I said earlier. Uh, Yes. Well, great to see you and great to be here. You know, Bill, I mentioned in opening that in late December, President Biden signed that bill that cleared the way for a trip over my tongue just thinking about $858 billion um, uh, bill in Pentagon spending and nuclear weapons work at at the Department of Energy. I'm wondering if you might begin by providing our listeners some perspective on the magnitude of that sum, what it means. Well, it's enormous. And in fact, it's um, one of the highest levels since World War II, higher than the peak of Korea or Vietnam or the highest levels in the Cold War. Uh, The increase uh, from 22 to 23 alone was over $80 billion, which is higher than the entire military budget of every country in the world except for China. Uh, so there's been a big push from hawks, from the industry, uh, to some degree from the Pentagon as well, although Congress wants to go further than the Pentagon has even asked. Uh, and, and the arguments have been about Russia and Ukraine, about rising power of China, 
about regional issues like Iran and North Korea, and about continuing a global war on terror, which gets much less attention. But in fact, we have counter-terror operations now in 85 countries. So it's it's just uh, kind of a plethora of missions, many of which I think should not be uh, primarily military. And, and of course, that sum uh, the, it does not take into consideration a full accounting of all the spending justified in the name of national security. Talk about that, what, what the actual larger figure is. Sure. Well, a short-term example is uh, aid to Ukraine, uh, tens of billions of dollars that are from emergency packages. So they're not in that $858 billion figure. Uh, but then there's things that are kind of consequences of war and preparations for war. So, um, you know, intelligence, military aid, uh, taking care of our veterans, the uh, homeland security, the part of the debt that's attributable to uh, high military spending. So if you do all of those things, you're already at $1.4 trillion and rising. Uh, so the sort of more comprehensive national security budget is is enormous. You, you say that there's certainly no question that one group will benefit in a major way from the new spending surge, and that is the weapons industry, uh, that more than half of that $858 billion will likely go to private firms. You suggest that the profits for those weapons industries, especially the largest of the defense contractors, as you say, do little or nothing to help defend the country or its allies. Talk about that some. How's that so? Well, for example, Lockheed Martin in its recent earnings call uh, bragged about how they were going to spend $40 billion over the next few years buying back stock. And the purpose of that is to boost uh, share prices, uh, which is to the advantage, of course, of the shareholders, but does nothing to build weapons, to provide defensive systems and so forth. They also pay their executives handsomely so that CEO makes over $20 million a year. Um, they spend a lot of money on lobbying uh, to get more money from the government, uh, millions and millions of dollars and on campaign contributions. So they spend a lot of money partly subsidized by our tax dollars to get more of our tax dollars. Uh, and then, of course, they build systems, some of which are dysfunctional and are only there because of their lobbying and because of the jobs in districts of key members of Congress. So there's a lot of ways that that spending doesn't align with what you would really consider defense or a defense uh, strategy. You're listening to military spending and war industry critic William Bill Hartung. Uh, I want to, again, remind you, our listeners, that today's program is being has been uh, pre-recorded, so we will not be taking calls this hour. Bill Hartung, tell our listeners about the Pentagon's national defense strategy released late last year. What is it and, and what, it call, what does it call for? Well, it was long awaited. Uh, you know, there was suggestions that it would come out at the beginning of last year. Um, but they kind of said they were going to rewrite it in the light of the Ukraine war. Uh, but it came out pretty similar to what we might have expected. So, you know, point one is great power competition, preparing to possibly win a war against Russia or China. They called Russia the, quote, acute threat because of Ukraine and China the pacing threat. Uh, that sort of sets the table for long-term spending plans. Uh, but they didn't stop there. Uh, they said, well, we need to be 
able to intervene in a regional contingency, for example, if Iran gets nuclear weapons against North Korea in case there's a crisis there, uh, still dealing with um, violent extremist terrorist groups around the world. Um, and as I mentioned before, we've already got counter-terror operations in 85 countries. We've got over 750 military bases. We've got a couple hundred thousand troops overseas. So it's kind of this cover the globe strategy, go anywhere, fight any battle on short notice. Uh, and I think it's misguided. It's kind of a vestige of the Cold War. And even then, I think it was a questionable approach. Uh, they do talk of things, things like integrated deterrence, which is sort of like different tools used in, in concert, um, political tools, economic sanctions, arms sales, ending with um, troop intervention or even the use of nuclear weapons. Um, but that integration is double-edged. On the one hand, you could say, well, they'll use tools short of war in some situations. On the other hand, it could be a slippery slope from one tool to the next. So uh, that'll be discussed for some time. But I think the bigger problem is just all these commitments that are being made and sort of this assumption that the biggest threats we face are all military and that therefore these amounts of money are somehow justified. Um, last year witnessed the end of the 20-year U.S. fiasco in Afghanistan. Importantly, you note in your piece that its ending by no means marked the end of the era of, of this country's, of the U.S. forever wars. Talk about what you gleaned from President Biden's speech uh, announcing the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, the messages he sent out. Well, it was interesting because this part of the speech didn't get as much attention. He mostly got attacked for the uh, kind of logistics of the withdrawal and the crisis caused by that, um, rather than the fact that the war itself had been a 20-year disaster that was going to continue to um, you know, draw troops, money, and... Uh, you know, wounded veterans and so forth uh, without achieving any security objectives. But anyway, in the speech, he said, you know, this is about Afghanistan, but, you know, terror has metastasized all over the world and we're going to continue to fight it on many other fronts. Uh, and if you look at it, there's still um, U.S. troops in Syria and Iraq. Uh, there's a presence in Somalia, including uh, major drone strikes. There has been a role in Libya, uh, and there's a kind of militarized approach in general to security in Africa, with most of our interactions involving um, training and weapons and uh, sort of um, what they call lily pads, not, not full-fledged military bases, but storage of U.S. weapons. Uh, there's a drone base in Mali, or rather Niger. So... Uh, there's still quite a large anti-terror apparatus. Uh, and so Afghanistan was not sort of the beginning of something. It was like a kind of a unique circumstance that hasn't really undermined the larger uh, war on terror. Stay with Africa a moment. That is, you, you mentioned that military aid and training is prioritized to the detriment of non-military support. Talk about that. That is, uh, that detriment to of non-military support? What, what is that support? Or what it should well, be anyway? Uh, a lot of the issues in Africa that fuel terrorism have to do with poor governance, corruption, uh, repression by existing governments, uh, which give terrorists uh, kind of a foothold to recruit 
and as uh, awful as their agendas are, um, they can find recruits because of the antipathy towards the existing governments. And some people feel like it couldn't really get any worse. Um, and so the U.S. is identified with those regimes and has trained many of their leaders, including leaders who have launched coups in some of those countries. So I think a better path would be to work on economic development, on anti-corruption measures. Um, you know, China's strategy in Africa is almost entirely economic in the Belt and Road Initiative. And it's got problems uh, in terms of some exploitation of how they get resources in exchange for building infrastructure and what kind of deals are being struck, um, the financial burdens, uh, some of the labor practices. But nonetheless, it's an economic strategy and they have made headway in Africa because of that rather than um, using a military first approach. And I, I think to some degree, the U.S. is getting outcompeted in Africa and is not really uh, limiting terrorism. There's been a proliferation of terrorism groups, terrorist groups since uh, the U.S. has sort of ramped up this militarized policy. So it's not working. And of course, uh, in Africa, as well as numerous places around the globe, um, that kind of prioritization of military aid and training and, well, military response um, contributes certainly to uh, a, a devastation of the devastation of climate change. Talk about that. You mentioned it in several places. Well, you know, the Pentagon itself, as Anita Crawford of the Cost of War Project at Brown University has pointed out, is one of the biggest users of fossil fuels in the world, um, ranking with major nations like Sweden. Uh, and it's partly, a lot of it has to do with what's used in war zones. Uh, they burn through a lot of fuel and so forth. Um, and then just the sheer amount of money, um, you know, the Pentagon budget is far higher than what the uh, Biden administration wants to commit to dealing with climate change or is able to commit because Congress scaled back considerably their plans on that front. Um, but the most recent act would provide, you know, tens of billions of dollars a year to deal with climate versus the hundreds of billions of dollars going to the Pentagon. And yet the Pentagon does reference climate as a threat, but they kind of take a narrow view. You know, their naval bases could be underwater, uh, there'll be refugee flows that might require U.S. intervention um, rather than the more holistic approach, which is basically it threatens the future of the planet. Um, and there were some efforts within the Pentagon to deal with climate in certain ways that were rolled back by Republican members of Congress who don't believe in climate change or claim not to anyway. Uh, so it's kind of one is resources. One is the impact of the Pentagon's activity themselves, um, although climate is identified in some documents as a security issue, it has not accorded the resources or attention uh, that terrorism or Russia or China uh, do. And of course, to deal with climate change, you've got to deal with the biggest emitters, and, and one of those is China. And so there's got to be U.S.-Chinese cooperation on climate change, which cannot happen if they're defined only as an adversary on the military front. And there's been efforts by Secretary Kerry to try to repair that relationship, but it's very difficult in this kind of, uh, you know, climate of threat exaggeration about China, uh, particularly in the military sphere. 
You note that the that the Pentagon crafted the current administration, excuse me, budget crafted by the current administration and expanded upon by Congress, isn't even faintly aligned to the Department of Defense's own strategy. Talk about that, the numerous examples of how bureaucratic inertia, parochial politics, and corporate money-making outweigh anything faintly resembling strategic concerns in, as far as the budgeting process is concerned. Yeah, that's an interesting aspect of all this because even if you accepted this expansive strategy, uh, the weapons they're buying don't really fit with it. And as you said, a lot of that's because of pork barrel politics. Um, and for example, $13 billion aircraft carriers that can be shot down by a relatively inexpensive high-speed missiles are not a good investment for dealing with China or most other contingencies. Uh, the F-35 combat aircraft has, by independent experts, been found lacking in many respects. The GAO says it has hundreds or even thousands of unresolved defects. Uh, it's not good at supporting troops on the ground. It's not great as a fighter plane. It's not as good as some other aircraft at dropping bombs. It's hard to keep flying, um, you know, that's because of maintenance problems. It's in the hangar sometimes more than it's in flight. Um, and we're not going to have aerial dogfights with Russia or China in a great power competition. It, it will escalate uh, much sooner than that, uh, unfortunately. And that's why we have to hold off any direct conflict with either of those countries. Um, then you've got things like the Army. And the Army's 450,000 troops and rising. Um, there would not be a ground war with China or Russia um, that would justify those level of troops. We shouldn't launch another Iraq or Afghan-style war, which is the only contingency where you might use the army to that extent. Um, I mean, if you look at Ukraine, it's a very acute and aggressive uh, action on the part of Russia, but there's no commitment of army troops. It's about arming, training out of country, uh, economic sanctions. So if it's not going to happen in that context, I don't see a realistic prospect that you need an army of that size. And so a lot of these things are because some of the ships are built in the districts of members of the armed services and defense appropriations committees. In fact, when they did the add-ons of 45 billion last year, one of the members from Maine who was pushing it in armed services uh, basically bragged about the fact that he had bagged a $2 billion dollar um, you know, destroyer uh, built in Maine as part of this effort. Uh, members from Virginia jacked up the uh, shipbuilding budget overall, and they've got a big producer of aircraft carriers and attack submarines at Newport News. Um, there's an F-35 caucus of dozens of members that are in that caucus because elements of it are built in their districts. Uh, they increased the number of F-35s. Um, they also prevented the Pentagon from getting rid of things, old aircraft, old ships that they wanted so they could pursue their strategy as, as uh, misguided as it is. So um, this, this pork barrel politics kind of overrides any rational alignment of spending with uh, strategy. You know, of course, you've, you've mentioned the F-35 already on a couple of occasions. It's of great interest, as you're probably aware, to, to some of our listeners since the Madison Regional Airport is scheduled to become a home base of a squadron of some 20 of the warplanes. So it's uh, people 
I imagine some of our listeners certainly, their ears pick up and they see ah, F-35. So, Again, you're listening to Bill Hartung, Senior Research Fellow at the Quincy Institute uh, for Responsible Statecraft, uh, a leading voice uh, in critique of Pentagon spending and the military-industrial complex, as it's commonly referred to. Talk about the nuclear weaponry part. Nuclear weaponry part of the equation. Well, the Pentagon's been engaged in a three decades long, two trillion dollar effort to build new elements of the nuclear weapons force: um, new ballistic missile submarines, new bombers, new intercontinental ballistic missiles, new nuclear warheads, new kinds of nuclear weapons like a sea launched nuclear-armed cruise missile. Um, and, uh, you know, Donald Trump doubled down on that and even added some things. Uh, President Biden objected to a couple small items uh, like this new sea launch cruise missile, uh, but that's only $25 million because it's an early development out of a budget of billions of dollars for nukes. So he really barely touched that buildup. And unfortunately... His nuclear posture review uh, did not uh, advocate no first use of nuclear weapons, as he had indicated he might, which basically means you wouldn't use nuclear weapons in a non-nuclear scenario uh, to defend against a conventional attack on Europe or a use of chemical weapons, but only if the U.S. was in danger of a nuclear attack. That would reduce the risks of nuclear war uh, by intention or accident and also would allow for a smaller nuclear force. And groups like Global Zero, who have the ultimate goal of getting rid of nuclear weapons, have done an alternative posture of kind of one step towards getting there. And one of the things they say is, you don't need a lot of these new nuclear weapons uh, because we should be phasing them out over time. The new ICBM will last till 2075. And we certainly don't want to have these weapons around for decades and decades, given the risks that they pose uh, thankfully, there are things like the nuclear ban treaty on the global level, which just uh, went by one of its anniversaries. But the major powers uh, with nuclear weapons have not adopted that treaty and actually are trying to persuade other countries uh, not to sign on. So uh, we've got this huge expenditure that actually puts us at greater risk uh, rather than protecting us. And there's not enough uh, action out of the Congress. There's certain members like Senator Markey from Massachusetts uh, and others who've uh, proposed uh, alternatives. Uh, but the ICBM lobby, which includes senators from states that have bases there, have prevented even studies of what we might do as an alternative. So they're, although they're from small states, uh, they've got a lot of clout because they go to their parties and say, well, you know, we're, we've got centers at risk in these states. You can't do something that's going to hurt them politically. And of course, the contractors like Northrop Grumman are giving money and making a jobs argument about the uh, construction of the missiles and so forth. So it's, th there's a huge uh, blockage uh, away from a, a saner uh, nuclear policy. Let's, let's continue on with, with, with this theme. That is, uh, there's a section in your, in your article uh, that talks about Congress only com how Congress only compounds the problem 
You point out that in the in the response to the recent chaos in the House of Representatives, the arms industry expanded its collaboration with the Republicans who are likely, who will actually head the House Armed Services Committee and the House Appropriation Committee's defense subcommittee and so on. Talk about that, some of the players uh, and, well, some of the congressmen that are in, in that Republican group um, and, and what they've received from the weapons-making companies. Well, the two most important Republicans in the House now in terms of uh, pushing up Pentagon spending are Mike Rogers of Alabama, who's going to chair the Armed Services Committee. He's been a longtime advocate of huge increases in Pentagon spending. Uh, he wanted 3 to 5% every year, almost in perpetuity of increases, uh, allow, uh, adjusting for inflation, uh, which if we pursue that path, we'd be spending a trillion dollars just on defense, not on the broader national security uh, investments um, within three to five years. And, and we're on that trajectory now because of the increases in the last year or two. Um, so Rogers, in addition to being ideologically a hawk, has major weapons contracts in his state. Uh, Huntsville, Alabama is known as Rocket City because it builds uh, missiles for the army. Uh, it's involved in missile defense systems. It's got major contractors like Lockheed Martin and Boeing located there. And Rogers will certainly beef up the parts of the budget that benefit those contractors and the work they do in his state. Then you've got Ken Calvert of California who will run the Appropriations Committee's Defense Subcommittee, which is another big uh, player in the ultimate decision about what the Pentagon budget is going to be. Uh, and he's close to Los Angeles, which gets by itself $10 billion a year in weapons contracts. Uh, so he's also a huge booster of higher spending. And I should say, this is not uh, determined by party. Uh, anybody who's got power will get money from the industry. So those two, uh, Calvert got uh, about 360000 in the last cycle. Rogers got over 400000 But there were also major contributions before the Republicans took power. For example, to Adam Smith, who ran House Armed Services. However, Smith was not on board with the full agenda of the arms industry. He was critical of the new ICBM. He voted against adding more to the Pentagon budget than they had asked for. Uh, he says we should not be in the business of trying to win a war with China, another nuclear power that would lead to, you know, that kind of war would be uh, disastrous, uh, but that it should be more of a deterrence posture, which would involve spending less money. So sometimes they spend this money to get access and influence but they don't get everything they want. But in the case of Mike Rogers, they may well get everything they want, or at least he will advocate for that. You know, uh, beyond campaign co contributions and so on, the industry's strongest tool of influence, uh, you say, is the infamous revolving door between government and the weapons sector. Talk about that, that, you know, we've long heard about these revolving doors where people leave their military careers to sit on boards or to join uh, um, military industrial corporations. Yeah, I think in some cases this may have even more influence than uh, campaign spending. Um, you'll have members, uh, you know, people from the Pentagon, from key positions on Capitol Hill, from the National Security Council, uh, go and work 
uh, for the big companies to lobby for them uh, in large numbers. And, and they not only do they have they know how the system works inside the Pentagon for buying weapons. They know how to manipulate that system. They've got their former colleagues uh, that they can uh, get an open door to to lobby for these firms. And they also, uh, when they're leaving government and they're in government, a lot of them are looking forward to a big payday when they leave and work for these companies. So they go soft on them, even when they're in government. Uh, and the GAO has found uh, 1,700 examples of these revolving door incidents uh, just in a, a few years' time. Uh, and the Project on Government Oversight has a whole database about this that they keep up to, up to date. Um, and there's also uh, the group Open Secrets uh, keeps a lot of information on this. And there's also, it goes both ways. You have people from industry going into government. And the most egregious example is the fact that four of the last five secretaries of defense came from positions in the weapons industry, either from the boards of companies or one of them was the head lobbyist for Raytheon. Uh, one was a longtime executive at Boeing, uh, working on missile defense programs. Uh, James Mattis was on the board of General Dynamics, came into government, left government to go back to General Dynamics. So they're kind of steeped in kind of the ethos and thinking and, and are connected to the interests of these companies, all of which, by the way, are big in uh, nuclear weapons development and production. So it's got to color their judgment uh, when they're in government. Uh, Lloyd Austin, who had been at Raytheon um, uh, under pressure from Senator Warren, said he would recuse himself from decisions involving Raytheon during his tenure. Uh, but what does that really mean when the company is making bombs that are being used in Yemen, building nuclear weapons, uh, involved in the kind of missiles that are being used in Ukraine, uh, and uh, you know many other things? How can he really recuse himself from weighing in on policies that might benefit that company, he would have to basically recuse himself from most of what the Pentagon does. So what he probably meant was he won't intervene in specific procurement decisions, but his policies that he has to make have great implications uh, for weapons companies. Again, you're listening to Bill Hartung, who is a senior research fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Uh, this program is is pre-recorded, so we will not be taking uh, callers uh, this hour. That leads us to a, a big, a huge question of what is to be done. Uh, you note that pushing back against such a correlation of political forces would require concerted public pressure of a kind as yet unseen. Do you see any promising steps in that direction, ways to reduce the staggering costs of ill-conceived military spending? Well, there's some good organizing going on uh, that has not yet borne fruit, but I think will in the years to come. Uh, so there's a group called People Over Pentagon that's pushing, um, working with Congress on a bill that would cut at least $100 billion from the Pentagon budget. Uh, sponsorship is growing. Uh, support is growing for not ever increasing Pentagon budgets, probably, you know, 100 to 150 members, which is a good start, considering that some years ago you couldn't get anybody to stand up on the floor of the House or Senate against these kinds of increases, except for a small handful of advocates. So, uh, and they are a broad coalition, not just traditional peace groups, but uh, political reform groups, environmental groups, immigration reform groups. 
Um, and it's an evolving uh, system. And of course, some groups are mostly consumed with the immediate issues that they work on. But uh, this campaign has some coordination uh, confronting the Pentagon and Congress on key issues. And then there's the Poor People's Campaign, which is uh, a kind of a legacy and homage to the campaign that Dr. Martin Luther King ran in the 60s, uh, co-chaired by Reverend William Barber and Reverend Lise Theo Harris. And they have a four-point program, one of which is uh, confronting and reducing the size of the war machine. Uh, and they have representatives and chapters all over the country. Uh, there's uh, kind of emerging groups, like a group called Dissenters, which is a youth anti-militarism group out of Chicago, uh, that one of their uh, planks is to confront the big five weapons contractors and engage in divestment campaigns against them on key university campuses. Um, so I think there's the, there are the seeds of a movement, and you never know when those seeds are going to grow into a large movement that can change Washington. Um, I mean, we saw it during the nuclear freeze campaign, the anti-Vietnam War efforts. There were huge early efforts against the Iraq war. The public aspects of those uh, declined somewhat when the war started, but ultimately public pressure did lead um, to a great diminution of, of the U.S. troop presence there. So um, I, th I think it's, it's a work in progress, but I think a lot of it has to be done at the state and local level. I think the state of Congress on these issues is very difficult now with this kind of new Cold War atmosphere that has emerged where, um, you know, critics of Pentagon spending are pilloried uh, in, in ways that are sort of more ad hominem attacks than substantive, uh, you know, critiques. So, yeah, I, th I think it's got to kind of bubble up and, and there are groups that have got a foothold at least. Um, so I'm hopeful that in the next few years that power will grow uh, and as people continue to see that uh, military approaches are not making us more secure and that we're neglecting the climate, preventing future pandemics, uh, dealing with inequality here and around the world, um, that there will be enough power to change this dynamic within the last few years where the Pentagon just goes up and up uh, at the expense of other things that we need. Uh, Bill Hartung, in your article, you you talk about a deterrence-only nuclear strategy. Talk about that. What is that? Well, the organization Global Zero has articulated this. Uh, and basically, instead of having a military and a nuclear force that's got all these war fighting plans, you know, targeting other countries' nuclear weapons in a crisis, uh, being able to in, in essence, try to win a nuclear war, which of course is impossible. Um, you maintain enough weapons so another country would not uh, attack the United States with, because they would understand they'd be destroyed in return. And that kind of strategy, you could cut the current arsenal almost in half and you wouldn't need to build the new generation of nuclear weapons. And then as you move down to that level, you look for opportunities to negotiate further reductions. And of course, negotiations would be very difficult at the moment with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, you know, the exaggeration of the Chinese military threat. Um, but hopefully we can keep some something alive out of all that. In the Cold War, uh, there was the hotline. Uh, there were treaties like the Non-Proliferation Treaty, uh, the START 
nuclear reduction treaty came shortly after the Cold War, uh, getting out of intermediate nuclear weapons in Europe, which were uh, particularly concerned because they could be uh, launched and land on such short notice. Um, so I think at the moment, the the challenge is, is to keep the issue alive and keep at least communications among the great nuclear powers in the hopes that we can get back to arms control and arms reduction in the nuclear front. Um, I want to uh, turn to uh, back to China uh, for a bit. What's your take on Washington's increasing focus on a possible future war with China over Taiwan and the uh, related increased U.S. military buildup in the Pacific? Well, to some degree, it started in the Obama administration when they talked about the pivot to Asia. But they didn't throw a lot of money at it because they were um, kind of bogged down in uh, you know, the larger Middle East. Um, but now the Biden administration is moving on it. Uh, and so they have uh, something called the Pacific Deterrence Initiative focused on China, which has gotten big increases in recent years. Um, they're trying to build up the Navy so they can push up against China's shores uh, and kind of bottle them up in their region. Uh, they're talking about long-range strike missiles that can hit deep into uh, China. And President Biden has made conflicting statements about what the U.S. would do in the event of a war over Taiwan. Taiwan's not a treaty ally, ally and there's a long-standing, what had been an agreement of a one-China policy. The United States would not politically recognize Taiwan as independent, even as it could supply it with certain armaments, and would not commit to putting U.S. troops on the ground and fighting on Taiwan's behalf in the event of a conflict. Uh, but rather, the goal would be uh, peaceful resolution of the Taiwan issue between China and Taiwan. And so some of President Biden's statements about going to Taiwan's defense, uh, things like Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan and then of other Congress members, which violated the understanding uh, of the One China Agreement, all those things have heightened tensions. And in the background, of course, the military industrial complex always needs an enemy. Uh, you know, at the end of the Cold War, uh, Colin Powell famously said, I'm running out of enemies here. Uh, and they kind of ginned up uh, Iraq and North Korea as sort of the new uh, demons that we had to build up uh, to address. And in 2018, the National Defense Strategy and a follow-up analysis by Congress elevated China as the big new threat. And, and it co coincided with a ramping down of troop presence in Iraq and Afghanistan, and at least a rhetorical lack of emphasis on the um, war on terror. So there's like an institutional push uh, from the industry and the government, and just a mindset that says there's always got to be an adversary, uh, and China is the adversary of choice. And of course, there's many things to criticize about China. Uh, their repression of Hong Kong, the sharp repression and putting in detention camps of the Uyghur population there, um, some of their saber rattling in the South China Sea. Um, but none of those things are going to be solved by pushing to the brink of a confrontation between two nuclear armed powers. Uh, there's got to be other ways at it, diplomatic and otherwise. Um, and that may not be fully satisfying, but China is a very powerful country. 
And the U.S. can't just sort of turn a switch and change their behavior. It's got to be a longer-term interaction. Um, so it's, it's a very difficult problem, but, but a, there's kind of a very large uh, constituency in both the Democratic and Republican parties on the Hill to see China as the threat of the future. And unfortunately, to view it as a primarily a military problem, in fact, China's biggest advantages have been political and economic, things like its Belt and Road Initiative and its outreach to uh, countries in the global south and so forth. So um, to the extent that China is a challenge, the U.S. is playing the wrong game uh, by putting so much stock in the military tool as opposed to others that might have more influence and also would bolster the U.S. position in the world more effectively. Bill Hartung, we have oh, about 12 minutes left in the hour. Let's turn our some fo attention to Russia. From your vantage point, what have you come away with in regard to Russia's invasion and occupation of Ukraine? Um, we have we receive a a kind of narrow analysis. I, I certainly through much of the mainstream uh, media talk about Russia and its capabilities, its threat to NATO, and so on. Sure. Well, you know, any discussion of Ukraine has to start with the fact that. Russia's invasion is unconscionable and the humanitarian consequences are horrific. But there's a couple questions. One is what happened before the conflict, things like NATO expansion, Russia's feelings of being threatened. Those don't justify the invasion, but they did indicate a mishandling of relations with Russia at the end of the Cold War. Uh, there were possibilities of cooperation uh, rather than building to a confrontational posture uh, that would have much um, improved our current situation. Uh, but now that Putin has gone in, um, there's a lot of talk about if we don't stop him here, he's going to attack NATO, he's going to embolden autocrats all over the world. But what's missing in that analysis is that uh, Russia's military has performed, uh, has underperformed in Ukraine. Um, Ukraine's a much smaller country. Analysts thought Russia would roll into Kiev, take over. Ukrainians would have to wage kind of a guerrilla war to try to get back their country. And of course, they couldn't capture Kiev. Uh, Ukrainian forces, because of Western arms and their own skill and courage, have stymied Russia's ability and rolled back some of the territory that they held. Uh, but I think the main thing is Russia is too weak to attack a 30-nation alliance like NATO. Uh, so I think Ukraine has to be dealt with in its own terms, not as some sort of global issue. Um, and ultimately, there's going to have to be a diplomatic track uh, to try to end the killing there, rather than allowing this war to go on year after year uh, or even escalate to U.S.-Russian confrontation. Now, there's no immediate prospects of that. Putin doesn't seem to be interested. Zelensky and the Ukrainian people don't seem to be interested. But um, there's got to at least be some dialogue to prepare the ground for the point at which a compromise that is acceptable to the Ukrainian people and government and can end the fighting is, is possible. There's got to be at least some, some communications, even if behind the scenes, to see what the terms of such a future agreement might be. We're getting down toward the end of the hour, toward the en end of your essay you write 
you wrote that forging a more sensible American defense strategy will, in the end, require two require progress on two fronts. First, the myth that the quest for total global military dominance best serves the interests of the American people needs to be punctured. Talk about that. Well, I think a lot of people are invested in the idea of America as number one, and they associate that with military power. Um, But if you look at the consequences of Iraq and Afghanistan, just for starters, uh, the cost of war project at Brown estimates those wars cost $8 trillion. If you look at the full costs, including taking care of our veterans. Uh, and what was accomplished in Iraq initially was putting in a sectarian regime uh, that so repressed uh, parts of the population that when ISIS swept in, there was very low morale in the army. There was corruption, so they couldn't get them the equipment they needed. Uh, ISIS took over large parts of the country. And in addition, some of the ISIS leaders uh, first met and trained in prisons in Iraq uh, that the U.S. helped to sustain. So there was this huge kind of boomerang effect from that war that did not achieve the, you know, the democratic Iraq that was supposed to help sweep democracy through the region, which was what advocates of the war had promised. In Afghanistan, uh, likewise, you know, the end of a 20-year war was the Taliban coming to power. Uh, so based on examples like that, you would think people would want to take a different approach. Uh, perhaps the United States could be number one in environmental technology or healthcare or, or you know, just education, resilience of our own uh, economy and, and, and people. Um, so I think there needs to be a shift of, of uh, culture almost uh, so that we uh, give up on this notion that more for the military is always better, always an insurance policy. Uh, you know, you can never spend too much. When in fact, more than an insurance policy, it's been a liability in embroiling us in these kinds of counterproductive conflicts that not only hurt our people, our veterans, people of the target regions, but also the U.S. reputation in the world to do business on other important issues. You know, and we're, again, getting close to the end of the hour, uh, but your second front uh, is to some, somehow, some way, uh, release the stranglehold of the Pentagon and its corporate allies on the budget process. It needs to be loosened in some significant fashion. Uh, you've touched on this. We, we started here, uh, but perhaps some uh, closing remarks. Well, I think the biggest issue is to break the jobs connection. And the industry itself admits that jobs are declining in that sector, uh, down from about 3 million in the 80s to 1 million now. They're automating, they're outsourcing. Uh, There's a lot of possibilities in investing in climate and other issues that would create many more jobs per dollar spent uh, than uh, military spending. So I think as we invest in those sectors, we could loosen that stranglehold economically. And then politically, uh, campaign finance limits, uh, limits on the revolving door, uh, looking at sort of the impact of their funding of think tanks that advocate for warlike policies. Um, there's a lot to be done on the political front as well. But, um, you know, I think it's got to be a multi-front uh, struggle because we are dealing with, uh, you know, quite a powerful lobby. You know, I want to come back uh, 
our engineer Jade tells me that we do have actually a, a, just a few minutes left, and I want to re- return to the F-35s. Um, uh, since people here are actively engaged in, in a movement to halt the uh, basing here in the Madison area, um, as a longtime monitor of the F-35 project uh, and its manufacturer, Lockheed Martin, what might you share with our listeners regarding the current costs and the status of that project? Well, per plane, it's now costing about $127 million on average. Uh, for Over its lifetime, uh, it could cost $1.7 trillion to build and operate, about $400 billion going into the building of the planes. Uh, so it's the most expensive overall weapons program in the history of the Pentagon. You want to build 2,400 of them, which makes no sense by any standard. Um, they're moving towards unmanned vehicles. Uh, the planes, as I said, uh, don't perform particularly well and aren't really adapted to any place where the U.S. might get embroiled in a conflict. So I, I anticipate that they won't build those 2,400. I mean, we've seen this with the B-2 bomber where they authorized 100 only built 21, or the F-22 where they authorized 750, build 189. So um, it's, it's going to be, eventually, there's going to be a turning point uh, where they stop throwing these kinds of money at the system, I believe. Um, so in that sense, to kind of dig in and deploying it all over the country, th- there should be uh, some caution in that uh, because we have to, we haven't really established that it's useful or necessary. Uh, so if we, before we embed it in communities all over the country, I think that question needs to be answered. Well, I want to thank you ever, ever so much, Bill Hartung, and hope to have you back again. It's been, as usual, a uh, pleasure uh, listening to you. Uh, Bill Hartung is a senior research fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He was previously the director of the Arms and Security Program at the Center for International Policy and co-director of the Center's Sustainable Defense Task Force. He's the author of the 2011 title, Prophets of War, the groundbreaking title, Prophets of War, Lockheed Martin, and the Making of a Military-Industrial Complex. Again, Bill Hartung, I want to thank you ever so much. And, well, I'll have you on again. I want to thank Jade for coming in and helping out today, as usual. I want to uh, thank you, our listeners, and... Uh, well, we had no callers today, but you are listeners, certainly, and I've been your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff, and I'll be speaking with you next week. Disregard the mainstream, media distorted. We come and listen and supported. Live and direct, we come and never be recorded. With information that will never be reported. Disregard the mainstream, media distorted. We come and listen and supported.